Hello! Welcome to Totally Fantastic Title. I'm Krista Wallace. I recorded a completely different intro. I edited it and everything. And then I decided I didn't like it, so I deleted it. And then I was going to tell a story about a cheese shop, but it turns out I don't feel like it. I don't always sleep well, and it's catching up with me. I took this morning to read a book, something not my own. I realize I've not had much in the way of downtime because of working on all this audio stuff, and I kind of hit a wall. I do have to record another chapter and start some editing, but I can do that. A better intro than this will have to wait till next week. And now, back to the part of the previously recorded intro that I did not delete. So here we are. Welcome to book two, part two. It's confusing, I know. But I didn't set out to write a trilogy in four parts. In fact, I set out to write a book, one book. I think I said this before that the first scene I wrote was the first scene in Gatekeeper's Key, where Kier has the duel with Simon. And the second scene I wrote was the Kami scene. And it took ages for me to realize that the Kami scene had no place in Kier's first story. So that's when I figured out I was writing at least two books. Then I was writing the second book and writing toward a scene that you haven't heard yet, thinking that that was the end of the second book. And when I got there, I went, uh-oh, the story isn't over. So I kept writing, which is why the second book is so long. It is long enough for two books, but it's all one story, you see. So that's why I'm publishing it in two parts. Gatekeeper's Deception, Part 1, Deceiver, and Gatekeeper's Deception, Part 2, Deceived. To put things in perspective, that scene I thought was the end is actually chapter 23. There are now 35 chapters in this book, so that's how much of the story was left. It does move along at quite a clip from here, though, so thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy it. Last week, you may recall a somewhat heated argument between Kier and Derry, at the end of which Kier took her leave. Gatekeeper's Deception by Krista Wallace Chapter 20 On Proving Herself Kier rode northeast, Kami's tower vaguely in her mind. For a long time, she didn't pay attention to where she was headed. Her focus had been stolen by Derry's accusations, and they replayed over and over in her head. As your captain, it is my duty, however unpleasant it is, to discuss with you The satisfaction of your own desires has, on more than one occasion, preceded the needs of our company. You only ever give us part of the story there with your flagrant neglect of our mission. Today with some doltish boy entirely beneath you. are just as bloody obdurate as ever. Have you nothing to say? That bastard, she told Trigg. Wind whistled in her ears. She drew her hood up, but it just blew off again. She left it. You once told me I could be counted on to do what is right. That was true. She had told him so, but she never dreamed he would use it against her. You insult us, Dunveran, Kian, and especially Alon Mare, with your flagrant neglect of our mission. 
Blood churned through her body so that she had to remind herself to breathe. Sharp, chilly air sucked into her lungs when she did. A good league after taking off, she came to a sparsely wooded area. There was no path to speak of, so she dismounted to lead Trig through the stands of pines and balsams. Layer upon layer of needles cushioned her footfalls. The ground was springy beneath her boots, which crunched with the occasional pine cone. The cold, clear night of frog moon peeked down between the branches, its pure white shafts ghostly and unnatural. Kier breathed deeply of the aromatic trees, and only after several such breaths did she realize she had been stomping through the woods. Fury still coursed through her. Hold a while, Trig. She dropped the reins to the ground with a soft plop. She drew her sword. Steal a sword from a dead body! and stepped away from her horse into a more or less open space. Swinging her weapon a hard left and right, she parried an unseen enemy's slashes. Up and overhead, then it crashed down into the spongy ground, and up again, horizontally, to block. An imaginary enemy screamed in agony as she cut him to ribbons. She hacked its head off. Kier dismembered several orcs in this manner, and with a long, deep exhale, she flopped to the needle-strewn earth, only now realizing that she'd left her bedroll back at the camp. At least the ground isn't so wet now, she thought. Lying on her back, she glared up at the shadows of treetops. Her body was shattered with fatigue, and though it still vibrated with anger, her mind had cleared a bit. She had never felt such rage. Certainly not aimed at someone who was supposed to be her friend. Friends were supposed to give each other the benefit of the doubt, weren't they? Somewhere along the way, Derry had stopped doing so. He had started reading into her actions, looking for things to find fault with. If you trust somebody completely, that doesn't happen. So what was his problem? Two months ago, Derry would have known there was some reason she was late for breakfast, something important that she couldn't share. He would not have questioned it. She truly had not expected him to believe that she'd slept with, what did he called Todd, some doltish boy entirely beneath you. And honestly, she didn't ever say that's what she had done. She simply didn't deny that she had. Necessary repression of the full truth. But could she really blame Derry for his anger at her lateness? You gave no other explanation, he said. That was true. Should she at least have explained that she could not tell him and asked him to trust her? That was the trouble. She didn't like to have to ask. Kier pursed her lips in a stubborn pout. Alon Mare is on her deathbed, waiting for us to save her life, and where are you? Off physically indulging yourself. Well, yes, she couldn't deny that she'd had her own pleasure in mind, but by the gods she was doing it for a reason. She wouldn't have gone at all if it hadn't been for the runes. But she hadn't explained why she was walking out on them. Sure, she'd told herself she couldn't tell them or they'd not let her go. But how much of it was just a tiny bit of enjoyment at needling dairy? The stars, peering out from the clouds that whisked across them, blinked down at her through the open-armed pines. She had been obdurate, there was no denying it. But did he have to be such a prig? She snorted. And he'd accused her of neglecting Alon. She couldn't believe his nerve. I was the first one to volunteer for this mission, and she's never left my mind. A sharp pain prodded her in the back of the head, and she sat up. That's not true. 
Kier felt like sinking into the chill-hardened ground, glad no one was there to witness the flush that passed across her face. She had denied Alon in those brief moments of weakness after her encounter with Frederick. She had chosen to follow Frederick. Her own personal mission had taken precedence. Even when they'd found her, it took her quite some time to decide whether she was happy about it or not. She recalled her jumbled mixture of relief at being discovered and longing to be left on her own. Terry couldn't possibly know that, could he? And she'd made up for it, hadn't she? She'd tried to. She pulled her knees up to her chest and dropped her forehead on them. Even if Derry didn't know, Kier did. How could she blame him for thinking she had deserted the mission when that's exactly what she had done? Her eyes stung. So long she had worked to prove herself as a swordfighter, as a vital addition to the group. She thought she had achieved acceptance, finally. And now it had come to this. How many others in the party shared Derry's opinion? Kier wished she'd spoken to Valraker before she'd come away. You already have a reputation for disobeying direct orders. The Dark Elf would have dismissed her, and then none of this would have happened. An unfamiliar sensation gnawed at her. It seemed to stab at her heart, forming an ache in her chest and throat, something she didn't remember feeling for years. The woman whom Kier called mother, Della, was highly regarded for her knitting. She raised the sheep, sheared them, cleaned and carded the wool. She dyed the soft lanolin-smelling fibers all sorts of rich colors and spun it into beautiful yarn. After all the preparation, Della either sold the wool or neighbors chose their yarn and she would knit it for them. Kier remembered being thirteen. Della had knitted her a sweater from a deep red, soft wool. It was a yarn that had just won Della first prize at the fair for its quality and fine texture. Kier wore the sweater to school, not trying to impress, which was not her way, but because she loved it. And wearing it, she felt proud to display Della's superb product, and just a bit smug. Her sweater could be compared to those worn by her classmates without coming up short. There was no way anyone could make a sneering comment this time. Sheska Bolin proved Kier wrong. The pretty and popular blonde girl took one look at the sweater and sniffed. Too bad. Even in that sweater, you still just look like a big mistake. Why don't you go back to your cornfield? Kier had had enough experience with Sheska to not really be surprised. Her pride had been ripped away and trampled on, and her throat and chest ached. Kier hadn't thought of that event for years, but the similarity to her current situation had reawakened those emotions. Her satisfaction at having obtained the runes had turned to dust. Derry's unjust words had quashed the triumph she ought to have felt as she placed the pouch in his hand. His just words pierced her with their truth and reason. He'd called her negligent. He'd all but called her a whore. She was terribly angry at Derry for saying those things. Still, there was something else. Hurt? Dreadful hurt. An unusual emotion for Kier. Why could she not just let it go as she had in the past? Sheska Bolin had tried to hurt Kier countless times, and Kier couldn't be bothered to spare any emotion for her, probably because she could so easily take revenge on Sheska. Two days after the incident, she'd sneaked into Sheska's yard and shredded all her dresses hanging on the clothesline with her knife. But Kier hated Sheska. It was easy to take revenge on her. This was different. This time, there would be no such purging of feeling. She had begun to see Derry's point of view, to understand why he'd thought those things about her. 
No, she couldn't bring herself to hate Derry. Moreover, she didn't want to hate Derry. Her final words to him echoed in her head, and she knew she'd hurt him as much as he'd hurt her, possibly more. He was right about something else, too, something that hadn't occurred to her until he'd said it. Why don't you trust me? She'd accused him of the same thing more than once in these past few weeks. When, how, had it broken down? Derry had been, not all that long ago, the one person in whom she had complete faith. Somehow her trust of him had eroded, as had his of her. Was one the result of the other? Which had come first? Kier cupped her chin in her hands and wondered what to do now. She couldn't stay here. She couldn't, and didn't want to, go back to a group of people who were preoccupied with watching her every move, waiting for her to screw up again. She could give up. Go home. Not a chance. Kier straightened. Memory carried her back to Gilvray's cabin, sitting at his desk, carefully cutting the rune pattern into her pouch, etching it into her mind at the same time. The pattern stood out in her memory, vivid as if it were in the palm of her hand. You're a fool, Kier, if you let this go. It was time she took her share of the blame for the terrible misunderstanding that had arisen between her and her friend. It was not too late to make it up. Swinging up onto Trigg's back, she nudged him west. The Indon Caves lay somewhere in that direction. Plus, her fatigue-crazed mind had come up with an interesting thought about red lights. At some point Derry fell asleep, for when he awoke the sun was peering over the mountains in the east. He was in his bed and felt the lumpy, hardened ground beneath it. His body felt like lead as if he hadn't slept at all, and he realized he must have relived his argument with Kier all night. The morning light brought new perspective to his troubles. She hadn't answered any of his charges, and she'd admitted to where she had gone last night. Something has seriously botched up your judgment, Derry. Well, not any more. If she were innocent, she'd have defended herself. Weeks ago, he had thought that whatever her motivation for coming on the mission, it might not be strong enough to keep her here. Either the danger would wear her down, or she'd realize the offer from Kami was too good to pass up. He was right on that score, but it was more than that. She had left because she truly did not care. Murmurs told him he was not the first one awake. Reluctantly, he pushed up on one elbow to see Jaskellen putting the tea kettle on the fire and Janik and Fennel standing over Kier's bed. Derry's heart flipped in the brief second it took him to assess the situation. No, Kier had not returned in the night. Jaskellen noticed the captain was awake. I gather things did not go at all well. Fennel and Janik looked expectantly at him. Skimnoddle came trotting up with a few more sticks of wood, just enough to get them through breakfast. "'Where is my lady?' the halfling bellowed indignantly. "'Did she not return from her tryst?' He dumped the wood and drew his little dagger. "'I shall storm the encampment. Major Gilvray, prepare to face thy—' "'She left, damn it!' Derry had no patience for Skimnoddle's posturing. He flung aside his blankets, and shoving his feet into his boots, rose, glaring round at the group. "'She came back last night. I said everything I intended to say. We argued. She left.' Anger, discouragement, betrayal. He lowered his voice. I honestly do not know if she's coming back. He began to roll up his bed. Not coming back, said Fennel, hurt in his eyes. I knew it. I knew you shouldn't have said anything. 
It was my duty to speak out. He had nothing to apologize for. And she wasn't happy about it. Wonder of wonders, Fennel said. Enough, Fennel, Derry ordered. The old Fennel would have held his tongue. But this Fennel's life had been saved by Kier. This Fennel had stood up to his father. I don't know what's going on here, but you two have been picking on her for days. The stick Jaskelin held fell into the fire as he rose. His courage mounting, Fennel continued. It's true. You and Jaskelin have been sulking constantly, mostly when it comes to Kier. You can't imagine that the rest of us don't notice. Kier, too. She's damn perceptive. You know it. You're a fool if you think she isn't completely aware of what you two have been thinking about her. At least, she may not know exactly what you're thinking, but she sure as hell knows you've decided something about her. Begging your pardon, Derry, you have not been exhibiting good leadership of late. We're used to better from you. What? Derry gawked. Twice in less than twelve hours was hard to take. You're not Kier's watchdog. You're the leader of this whole group, and this whole group is suffering. Morale has plummeted, and I don't think you've even noticed. Until we got here, we had yet to fail at any part of this mission, and yet everyone's moods are lower than tree roots. I don't understand that. We've been successful, and still you're just... moldy, which tells me that all this is not related to our mission. The truth of his words pierced Derry's heart. They bore an odd resemblance to some things he seemed to remember Kier saying. He started to speak. You're right. Jaskelin stepped forward. I believe it is time to share with you the news I learned in Seaview. This may shed light on Kier's actions and why she is no longer with us this morning. Jaskelin launched into the conversation he'd had with Frederick in Seaview. They listened, open-mouthed or tight-jawed, depending on their individual faith in the mage's tale, as he described Frederick's deeply rooted devotion to Kian, his entrapment in a terrible situation, his continued desperate attempts to thwart the plans of those who would see Alon Mare dead. I have to tell you that I believe him to be sincere. It is difficult for me to accept, as much as I'm sure it is for you. I have thought much about it, and I can only ask that you consider my training and track record for dealing with people. It is my duty to understand them. What about understanding Kier? Fennel muttered. And so in this case I assure you of my faith in Frederick Hayland, despite his troubling situation. I intend to help him restore Kian's faith and trust as well. All right, this is a lively tale, Fennel said. What does it have to do with Kier? Janik, Jaskelin appealed to his friend, we've known each other a long time. Would I conjure up a story from nothing? Have you ever known me to deal in fancy, in fiction? The dwarf paused to give the question due thought. He shook his furry head. No, if I may say it, you've never had much of imagination about you. Thank you. I ask because this may be hard for you all to take. There is no way to express it easily. Frederick has it on excellent authority that... He lowered his eyes. Lady Alon Mare has been cursed. The curse was administered in a malison that takes the form of a jewel, a necklace in the shape of a serpent. She was told the necklace was a gift from Kian, but she was deceived. The gift was delivered by a young maid who only worked at Barthelen Castle for a short time. There is reason to believe that maid was our Kier Halidon, in disguise, working at the time for Ronav Malachite. Outrageous! Skimnoddle's forced cry came out more as a plea. 
Fennel's face looked stricken. Janik's head shook again. Demon's balls! Jaskelin shot a glare at him. I have been sensing magic on her since we left Shale. It has grown stronger. You all have noticed as well as I how aloof and distant she has been of late. It may pain us all to think on it, but we surmise that after she met with Frederick, she deliberately followed him, with the intention of killing him. She did not want us to find her. Do you remember how she reacted? Fennel could not maintain eye contact with Jaskelin. Skimnoddle and Janek looked uncertain. Jaskelin went on, fueled by lack of opposition. She has not been truthful. She has withheld information. All the things that Derry confronted her with last night. And as soon as I confronted her, she bolted, Derry said. This is utter rubbish, Fennel said. I refuse to believe any of it. How many of you, Jaskelin challenged each of them in turn, are aware that the serpent is a symbol of undying love? Their faces showed recognition of the phrase Kier had spoken only two nights ago. Jaskelin looked triumphant. You see? That's why you jumped up when she said that, Janik said. Jaskelin held his arms out in a gesture of acknowledgement. Janik sighed. My friend, I have never known you to speak without being absolutely convinced of the validity of your arguments. I hate to speak out against the girl, though you may laugh to hear it. If Jaskelin believes this to be true, then, much as I hate to, I must accept that his view has merit. I'll have to think about it. Skimnoddle lowered his head. The old Fennel might have acquiesced. You can't possibly all sit here and accept this. You can't take her comment about the snake as proof that she did such a horrible thing. He turned to Derry. You talked about her self-indulgence in sleeping with Todd and being late for breakfast and all that. Don't you remember that Todd came into the inn delivering a letter as we sat there? Derry's face blanked with thought, but Fennel didn't wait. She wasn't with him. I don't know who she was with, but she was gathering information. I believe her when she said Gilvray was lying. Like Kami said, everything has a price, and the information about the runes cost her. If you weren't so busy making shit up about her, you might recognize that she left her bastard sword in Seaview. He sat down on the dewy grass and scowled, wondering what his fate would be for such an outburst. Jaskelin looked expectantly at Derry. His eyes demanded the captain's support. Derry was at a loss. He had not noticed that Kier's sword was missing. Now that Fennel had brought it to his attention, he thought back. The irksome elf might come across as a scatterbrain, but this time he was right. Kier had bought the information about the runes at a high price and was not willing to lose faith in her purchase at Gilvray's cheap denial of their existence. Hence her defensiveness when I told her this trip was a waste of time. Tea's ready, Skimnoddle ventured. They helped themselves to what was left of the food they'd obtained from the army. I don't like to let you think I don't believe you, Jaskelin, Janik remarked, but I have to say I take it hard. I watched her kill Ronav Malachite. I just... He blinked heavily. I don't know. Derry just shook his head. As Frederick pointed out, the mage said, pouring his tea, Ronav did not ever do her serious harm physically. We do not know what their agreement was. Perhaps he betrayed her in some way. Skimnoddle looked crestfallen. The evidence is so strong. 
Oh, out of sight, out of mind, eh? Scorn edged Fennel's tone. Funny how quickly you stop defending your beloved when she's not here. Maybe now she'll know that there are others more worthy of her, he thought, and then added, Well, I say it's dead easy for us to sit here and pick apart her every action and conveniently adapt them to a new interpretation. That doesn't make it true. Derry raised a hand. Obviously, we will remain open to evidence from either side, but we still have a mission to perform. The question is, what do we do now? Have we enough information about the ingredients to continue on our own? The alternative is to admit defeat and return empty-handed to Barthelon Castle, Jeskelin said. I say we carry on. We must be able to access the cave somehow. Less than an hour later, they were headed northwest across the rolling plains under scattered clouds and a thin sunshine. Kier's bedroll was tucked in next to Fennel's. The elf felt a sort of triumph. He may not have changed anyone's mind, not yet, but he had pointed out a key piece of information that no one else had noticed. Turns out that when you demand to be heard, they listen. He grinned for the first time in days. The grin, however, was short-lived. The pounding of horses off to the north tugged his gaze in that direction. With Jeskelin on foot, they could be intersected in a matter of moments. At about a furlong distant, the pale sun briefly caught a sheen on the red hair of the man in front. Damn! The elf hesitated in reaching for his bow. I don't even know any more if Frederick is friend or foe. Trigg had had a good long rest between the time they'd arrived at the Inden Hills encampment to the time Kier flew off late last night. He'd been still while she'd battled with her conscience, and a few more times since she'd arrived at her decision. He'd found water to drink in a few hollows that were not drained of the other day's rainfall, and of course there was grass to eat, so Kier did not feel abusive of him by pushing him toward the blue hills that grew ever taller as she neared them. It was a full day's hard ride from the encampment to the Inden Hills, and she'd started her day in the middle of the night. She also didn't have a party of companions to slow her down. Still, it was well after midday that she gained higher ground and finally stopped to put some thought into the potential location of not only the caves, but the path leading to them. She sat on the stubbled grass to take in some food and water, and waited. Kami's dream hadn't yet failed to connect her with the information she needed. Would he know the answer to this query? Breathing calmly, she closed her eyes and pictured the mountain in front of her. Trigg, sensing her concentration, nuzzled her arm. Unconsciously stroking his neck, she felt his warmth seep into her hand, up her arm, through her shoulder. It softened her neck and made its way into the recesses of her memory. Ah, there it was. On Trigg's back again, she chirruped to him, nudging him southward. After about twenty minutes riding, she stopped. Like the tunnel into the trees that had led her to her sword, she sensed its presence before she saw it. She turned around and retraced a few of Trigg's steps. All but concealed by brambles, the path would have been impossible to find if she hadn't been looking for it. So Gilvray's men didn't come here often, then, nor did anyone else. Drawing her weapon as she dismounted, she took a page out of Fennel's book and spoke to the bushes. "'If you please, may I pass?' They quivered and allowed her to use the blade on the most tangled of gnarled branches, but it didn't take much. An overgrown path presented itself before her, beckoning her to follow. 
Without hesitation, Kier stepped onto it and led Trigg upward to the right, switching back to the left after about fifty paces. Back and forth the path carried her up the mountainside, like the swinging of a great pendulum. Horse and woman picked their way through the underbrush, surrounded by trees, underscored by birds and small animals. Kier didn't care to identify the sights and sounds. She was bent on success, on making amends, on proving herself, again. And oddly enough, it was not Alon Mare's face that came to her mind. If this was the new Frederick Hayland, in recovery from deep sorrow and regret whilst leading his band of cutthroats, Derry was not impressed. To Derry, the former captain of the Shale Guard wore the same air of condescension and superiority as ever, though now he's in a role he's much more suited for. Still, Valraker's captain raised a hand to stay Fennel's bow. Frederick misinterpreted this as a greeting and hailed in return. Fennel lowered his bow, but the arrow remained knocked. The party of ten riders slowed to a halt a few paces away, and Frederick dismounted, joined on the ground by one other, a dark-haired woman, his second-in-command. One young rogue exchanged a look of recognition with Fennel, and Derry guessed he was the one who had convinced Kier to return with him. Frederick drew on a friendly yet business-like expression, as though he were reuniting with colleagues from days gone by. "'It's good to see you again, Captain Morant,' Frederick said, "'even though it is under such circumstances as these.' Derry pushed up on his stirrups, stretching his legs a little, but did not dismount. Seated again, he said, "'What circumstances do you mean? Yours seem to have changed rather dramatically since we last met.' Frederick had the grace to flush. The top corner of his lip smiled. "'I refer, of course, to the illuminating news of a—' He glanced around. Certain acquaintance of both of ours who is noticeably not in attendance today? Derry congratulated himself that he did not mimic the blush of his old nemesis. He did not owe Frederick an explanation, so he did not offer one. I was hoping you might illuminate us further, Mr. Hayland. Frederick's eyes narrowed in annoyance, and Derry pondered its source. Was it that he'd used the man's name at all, or was it more because he'd pointed out the difference in their stations? Around here I am called Hunter, Chief Hunter, as a matter of fact. Derry acknowledged this with a polite bow and didn't congratulate the other man on his promotion from mere vagrant. Now, did Jeskellen here not inform you of what I had to share? Yes, he did, but I would like more detail. Derry folded his hands on the pommel of his saddle. Hearing the story from Jeskellen was one thing, but he still felt a need to defend Kier when it was Frederick Hayland throwing out accusations. "'I am open to hearing what you have to say, and if Kier truly is guilty of this thing of which she is accused, I certainly will wish to see justice done. But to this point I have heard only circumstantial evidence and conjecture. From whom did you obtain this story?' Derry watched Frederick struggle with his frustration, but eventually common sense won over. If the former captain were trying to reinstate himself into Kean's favour, after all, it obviously would not do to lose his temper with Kean's best friend's captain. He sighed. I understand your scepticism, certainly, and I recognise it is a heavy charge to place on one who is a friend. Would that I could reveal my source to you, but sadly I cannot. Suffice it to say, he is one of the most powerful men in Rydris, and makes it his business to know the details of the continent's activities. 
Derry remarked to himself that there were an awful lot of most powerful men in Rydris, but he held his tongue. "'My source told me of Kier's coincidental first meeting a few months ago with Lord Valraker.' No one seems to know where she had been before that, though the story I was told said she was at Barthelen Castle, not far from what she claims to be her hometown. She was working for Ronav Malachite, which was why she went to him later, to report, though between them they put on a good show of her pursuit and capture. You will recall that she was not seriously harmed while in his company. Derry couldn't hold back a sarcastic laugh. <laughs> you have a strange definition of not seriously harmed. She was barely mobile. Frederick brushed him off with a wave. She put on a good show and recovered. Obviously, he did something that threatened her position because, as you know, she eventually killed him in Nenya. One cannot always tell what will set women off, particularly ones so intense as Kier can be. He scratched the growth of beard under his chin and shrugged. She showed an uncanny awareness about the serpent and its symbolism, Jeskelin put in helpfully. She brought it up herself and certainly appeared to wish she could retract her words. Is that so? Frederick said, unwittingly revealing her connection. Captain Morant, I can only add that I have the story on faultless authority, and beyond that I shall have to ask you to trust me. "'And why exactly should we do that?' Fennel said. "'Because you're a trustworthy individual? I can tell by your choice of friends.' Frederick nearly lost his cool. "'These are all honest people,' he fumed. "'Ill-treatment and bad experiences have made them disillusioned by the way our leaders run the continent. They only want the same as each of us. To make a living. To survive. To be treated with some modicum of respect.' A few nods from his men and woman. The man who'd made eyes at Fennel sat a little straighter in the saddle. Frederick pushed his hair off his face. Do you have any idea what this is like, being in the same position as people like them? I was banished from my post and from my home, to be told I can never return. I made some mistakes, but haven't we all? Derry, you've served Valraker for a very long time. You know what it's like to devote your life, your loyalty, your love to the service of that one man. I was ripped away from Kian. He is, was, my lord, and he tossed me aside like he, like a cloak when the weather is hot. After over twenty years of loyal service, and all for a few indiscretions, mistakes, I tell you. Frederick's fingers clenched into tight fists. Derry, think on it. How would you feel in my position? Derry wanted to say that he would never get himself into such a position, but he couldn't find his voice. Frederick's words had merit Derry couldn't help admitting. Besides, Fennel's words had sunk in. What would Val have to say about the way his captain had neglected, even ignored, the steadily declining morale of his company? If Val ever saw fit to punish his captain, Derry knew exactly how he'd feel. He thrust those thoughts aside and recalled his rage of last night at Kier's reprehensible behavior. Now, on the other hand, if Kier had given Alon the curse, then Val would undoubtedly commend his captain for his good use of instincts. Captain Morant! Frederick's eyes were pools of sincerity. Derry! I want to help on this mission to save the Lady Alon Mare's life. I would do anything, anything, to regain my lord's favor. Derry peered down at him from under furrowed brows. 
anything, Fennel said, like condemn an innocent woman. Frederick wheeled to face the elf, anything like bring truth and justice upon someone who I know is a dear friend to those around me. Don't forget that she and I... He lowered his eyes, his head swaying from side to side. Believe it or not, Kier was special to me, too. Derry lifted his gaze to Fennel, whose eyes burned blue fire with outrage and challenge. The captain glanced round at each member of his company, but none of the others could look at him. Janik sat on his pony, turning his discouragement skyward. Skimnoddle's frown and limp shoulders gave him an air of sheepish sadness, and Jaskellen was nodding dejectedly at Frederick. There would be no help from any of them. Finally the captain dismounted and faced Hunter. All right. His voice was tight and hoarse. I'm prepared to hear you out. Skimnoddle listened to every word the two leaders said. Kier's position was precarious at best, and he did not want to believe it. He needed time to sift through all the bits and pieces of information. Both sides had compelling arguments. He understood that Chief Hunter was really Frederick Hayland, recently banished ex-captain of the guard to Lord Barthelon. He had made some excellent points. The whole thing about the symbol of the serpent was indeed puzzling. The chief had certainly come across as emotional and sincere during his speech, but the halfling was curious about his last words. Kier was special to me, too. Skimnoddle, not having been a part of the group at the time, had been told the summarized version of what had happened between Kier and Sir Frederick, how they'd slept together, how Frederick had bragged about his association with her to his men, how Kier, true to form, did not let him get away with it, and how all Frederick's other indiscretions had been revealed, resulting in his demotion and banishment. Skimnoddle didn't understand how Frederick could refer to Kier as special, yet be guilty of boasting of their intimacy. If I ever had the honour of her company, I would never defame it that way. But what did Skimnoddle know? He dismissed it and kept his eyes averted while vowing to eat a bushel of potatoes if only Misty and Juggler would not recognise him as the halfling who had played dice with them. So, Derry and company have kind of tentatively joined forces with Frederick and company. We shall see how that goes. And Fennel is really gaining confidence. We shall also see how that goes. Now, my other bit of excitement is the launch of my second audio short. This story is called The Inner Light, and it was the winner of the first ever Raven Cover Story contest through Pulp Literature magazine. The print version is in Pulp Literature issue number six from spring 2015. It is now available as a little audio short story. And Gatekeeper's Deception Part 1, Deceiver, is coming out soon for audiobook lovers and those of you who want to binge the story without listening to me yammer in between. Now, I must be off to work on book three, by which I actually mean book four, the final book in the Gatekeeper series. If there are any loose ends you want to make sure I don't forget to tie up, ahem, if there's a thing or a character you are really looking forward to finding out what happens with them, plonk it in the comments or on the Totally Fantastic Title Facebook page or in an email to totallyfantastictitle at gmail.com. 
Honestly, some of the comments I have received have reminded me of my responsibility to you all, and I don't want to louse it up. Keep the comments coming. I really love hearing how mad you are at Tuscalin and Derry, or how nerve-wracking an episode was. For now, thank you to my family, Matt, David and Heather, and Maggie. Thanks to David and Sharon. Thank you to the original six. And thank you, dear listeners, for listening. Now, go be fantastic.